We are working our way through the Gospel of John. We're nearing the end. This is the night of the crucifixion. In the morning, shortly, Jesus will be arrested, he will be tried, he will be condemned, and he will be sent to the cross. And what we've been looking at is called the Upper Room Discourse. It's the night before, mere hours before all of this horrific stuff is going to happen. And the disciples have been in an upper room with Jesus. They participated together in the Passover, what we call the Last Supper. And their hearts, both Jesus' heart and his disciples' hearts, Scripture tells us, are extremely heavy. Jesus' heart is troubled, and his disciples' hearts are troubled. Judas, at this point in the night where we are now, has already gone out. He's gone out into the night, Satan has entered his heart, and he has gone out to find and gather the mob that is going to return uh, to arrest Jesus. Now, it may very well be past midnight, at this point. Last week, Jeff began John chapter 16. We pick up this week where he left off. So our text for this week is John chapter 16, beginning at verse 16. Now, uh, just a little uh, uh, change here. Your bulletin says that we're doing John 16, 16 through 33, uh, but we're not. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 22. And next week we will finish uh, through verse 33. If you have a Bible with you, as always, I'd encourage you to open it up and follow along as I read the passage. If you would like to follow along and don't have a Bible with you, if you look in the seat in front of you underneath, you'll find our passage on page 902. John chapter 16, beginning at verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me, because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So Jesus and his disciples, the 11 that are there, are deeply troubled, but 
You don't really need to read too deeply into this. All you really need to do is just read through this passage, I think, to see that they're coming at this, everything that's going to happen, from vastly different perspectives. They're both very troubled, but I think for very different reasons. Jesus is troubled, deeply troubled, by all of the things that he knows is going to happen. The disciples are troubled by all of the things that they don't know is going to happen. You can see it in the text. Jesus, it says, knows. It keeps saying Jesus knows things. He knows that his hour has come to depart from the world and go to the Father. Jesus knows that he's come from God and that he's going to God. Jesus knew and expressed that Judas was going to betray him. Jesus knows that Peter, before the rooster crows, is going to deny him three times. Jesus has a clear vision of everything that is going to transpire in the next few hours. And I think knowing fully what is going to happen to him, that that it's right on the cusp, that is what's troubling Jesus. We see it especially vivid in the garden where he sweat drops of blood. The disciples are very troubled as well. I mean, it's repeated over and over again how troubled they are, but, but I think they're troubled more like the way a child is, like the way a child is troubled when that child sees that his parents are troubled, and they don't quite know why. Uh, the disciples aren't used to seeing Jesus troubled. He's been the one who's been going around and healing people and seemingly in control of everything, and, and now they see him shaken. And they're asking him lots of questions. You know, you can you know, think about you know, some tragedy that happens or, or something bad that befalls a family. And the parents are upset. The parents are distraught. The, the mom and dad are, are talking and they have worried looks on their face. Why? Because they see all of the ramifications of this thing that happened. They see the the extra cost of the insurance or or all of the ripple effects that this thing is going to cause or whatever they're dealing with, they know all of the the side effects. The children see the look of, of, of anguish on the parents' faces and they're saying, what's going on? Why are you upset? What's going to happen? What do you mean by that? The parents may give them an answer. What what does that mean? What do you mean by that? I, I think that's kind of what's going on here. See, we have to remember that, that this is one conversation. Uh, this happens in one night. We, we've been going through it slowly, uh, taking weeks to, to look at the details of this conversation, but, but this has happened over the course of, of one night in an upper room, and, and a ton of huge topics have been discussed. Some of these topics have been amazing promises that have been given to the disciples. Think of some of the promises that have been, Jesus has said to them, look, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my Father's house, and I'm going to come and take you so that you are with me. Jesus has said to them, I am not going to leave you as orphans. He said to them, I am going to send you another helper, another counselor, one who's just like I am, and he'll be in you, and I will be in you. He, he said, look, I chose you. Don't you see? I chose you to bear fruit and fruit that will last. 
at the same time and in the same conversation, Jesus has shared with them incredibly troubling news. He, he said, look, I'm going to be betrayed. Right now, it's upon us. One of you, in fact, the leader of all of you, is going to deny me three times. Oh, by the way, the, the world that, that hated me so badly, it's going to hate you. And you will be persecuted. Oh, and as Jeff preached last week, by this point in the conversation, it's been ramped up greater than it has so far because so far all they've heard is that the world's going to hate them and, and persecute them. But, but what did Jesus say in last week's text? You are going to be put out of the synagogue. And remember, Jeff said that was incredibly important in that day. They're going to be excommunicated from the synagogue. And in fact, you will be killed for me. Can you imagine that? The course of one night, now you're being told not just that the world's going to hate you, but you will die on account of me. You can imagine, I can only imagine what I would be thinking had I been there. And so it makes sense, therefore, as chapter 16 says, that sorrow has filled their hearts. At this point, sorrow has filled their hearts. Everything else has kind of vanished. Throughout, though, throughout this whole conversation, if you just kind of gather it and, and see what's going on here, it seems as though Jesus has kind of been the parent. And they've been the child, talking about the same thing. Jesus has been saying to them in many different ways, what I'm saying you don't understand fully right now, but one day you will. He keeps saying that in so many ways. Right before our passage today, in John chapter 16, verses 12 to 13, Jesus says, look, I still have many things to say to you. You cannot bear them now, but when the Holy Spirit comes, then you'll understand. So there, there, there constantly is this back and forth. And if I suspect that they're not right now seated in the upper room any longer, but, but they're working and winding their way through the streets of Jerusalem, headed out to the edge of the Kidron Valley, then you can imagine, and just picture this, Jesus leading the way and these 11 men kind of following behind him, sometimes falling a little bit behind, sometimes catching up a little bit more, switching places in line, and some of them catching some of what he's saying and, and sometimes not, then, then you can imagine that, that they're kind of talking amongst each other. Wait, what did he just say? What, what's, what's going on here? Did, did he say in a little while? What, what, why is he saying that? It, it sort of seems like the closer they're getting to this inevitability that Jesus has been talking about, that, that their, that their uh, sorrow and their anxiety is, is ramping up, that the questions are increasing in intensity. I, I say all this because I think from our vantage point, as we just go through this text and we, we kind of forget what's going on here, we can wonder why these men keep ask, seemingly asking the same questions about the, something that Jesus has already explained to them a number of times. You see, in verses 16 to 19, he says something that it seems like he just said not that long ago at dinner. Look, a little while, and you're going to see me no longer, and again in a little while, and you will see me. 
He's just been talking about this. And he says it again. And some of them begin to say to one another, what's he talking about? And, you know, this past whatever night it was, I can't remember, we, we, we looked at this passage as a family, and uh, Michelle, after she read the passage, uh, that was kind of a, a question that was kind of bounced around at the table is like, didn't he just explain all this? Why, why are they asking again? I don't understand. Uh, notice, though, I think if you kind of zero in here at, at what it is they're asking, it seems as though the main point is in verse 18, that the main point that they're zeroing in as they ask this question is, what does he mean by a little while? What is the timing here? See, they had heard him say, maybe for the first time, I think it's the first time John records it, they had heard him say half a year earlier at the Feast of Tabernacles this same kind of thing. Six months earlier at the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7, the Pharisees come around and the Pharisees hear the crowd muttering these things about him. The chief priests and Pharisees send officers to arrest him. And Jesus says to them, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So six months ago, Jesus told a group that. A little while and you're going to see me no longer. Now six months have gone by. What, what does he mean by a little while? Six more months? Wait, where are we going? Why, why does it seem like he's really, really troubled now about what's about to happen? I, I think that's what's going on. That they've heard this kind of talk from Jesus, but, but I think they can sense that something ominous is about to take place and that it's nearer than ever before. And so they're asking the question again amongst themselves. I remember uh, as a kid, I don't remember how old I was, but... Uh, but kids in elementary school started showing up to class with a shirt, a t-shirt that said, I survived the super duper looper. And, uh, and I didn't know what that meant, uh, but one day my dad took me to Hershey Park. And, uh, and we walked in and I was a little kid and I see this roller coaster that didn't look like it strapped you in very well going upside down in a loop. And, uh, and I remember my dad saying, hey, why don't we go on that? Or something to that effect. And I said, I don't know. I don't know if I want to go on that. Is that that super duper looper that people claim they've survived? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you go upside down. Am, am I going to fall out? Is everything going to, you know, and I remember we watched a couple times people go down and my dad explained centrifugal force to me and, and all of this stuff, how it's not going to happen, I'm not going to fall out. And, uh, and then we just moved on and went on other rides and everything. And all throughout that day, I mean, we postponed the Super Duper Looper till the very end. And all throughout the day, I kept asking him over and over again, are you sure I'm not going to fall out of that thing? Are you, is it going to be fun? It's not going to be too scary. No, no, you'll like it, you know, and all of this stuff. And I remember that I asked him again when we were in line waiting for him, you know, you sure this, everything's going to work out? Yeah, and then I think the, the intensity was at its peak as we were kind of chugging up the hill, 
you know, right before you go down that first, because it's the first, it's, it's the loop right away. Like, it's not even delayed. And, uh, and I remember asking, like, right before we went down the hill, like, what should I do? You know, like, should I, like, look at it, look up, hold on? And, and my dad said, put your head down. So I put my head down, and then the centrifugal force, like, shoved me down even further. So it was really kind of a rough ride. But, but the questions increased and increased and increased. And, and so I think what you see here is these children, these little children that Jesus calls, and they, they ask what does he mean by a little while? Does he mean like now? Is, is this the little while? Now notice Jesus' kindness. Notice his love. Verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking among yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? See, they wanted to ask him. That's what they really wanted to do because he knew. But they didn't. Instead, they asked each other. This pool of ignorance. And, and, they're, and they're asking one another, what does he mean by that? But I'm sure we've all been there before. In some uh, fashion, and in, in some uh, scenario, you've probably been there. You've been in, you know, in the conference room and the boss is explaining uh, you know, this is the way it's all going to work. This is what I want you to do this month. Here are the things I need you to do. And you miss something. And rather than raise your hand in, in the boardroom and say, the conference table and say, can you say all that again? I missed everything. Or I missed that really important part. You lean over to the guy next to you and you say, what did he just say about the thing? Like, I didn't get it. Hoping he understood but maybe he didn't get it either, so you're all kind of pulling your ignorance. Uh, they want to ask Jesus about something he's already explained, but they don't dare ask him because they don't know what kind of reaction he's going to have. And I remember in college, I took this philosophy course. It was a freshman course, and uh, it was called Critical Thinking. And I remember, uh, you know, the professor gave us all of these logical um, equations, modus ponens and modus tollens and all of these things. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But he was a really bad teacher because he would give the, the, the concrete formula, give no examples or illustrations of what he meant, and then just start moving on. And, you know, you're looking around the class and everybody's got at least half the class is looking like, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. And so every once in a while, he would stop and say, are there any questions? And, you know, sheepishly, you know, somebody would, would raise, raise his hand or her hand and say, uh, I'm, I don't think I quite get what you're saying. And he would erupt in anger. And he would say, Ha! You know, I'm not kidding, this is no exaggeration. And he would say, listen up this time! And he would grab his chalk and he would start banging on the chalkboard and the chalk would be busting everywhere and he would write the exact same thing that he just said five minutes later that nobody got. And then he would turn around and say, are there any more questions? Well, what do you think? I don't think he got any more questions the rest of the year. And then when he passed out the, the first exam and like half the class failed, he said, 
I can see by the exam that there are very few critical thinkers in this class. It was, <laughs> it was like, oh man, this guy. But Jesus knows. He knows that they want to ask him. And look at what he does. I mean, despite the fact that they still don't get it, he gently reveals that he knows. I know you want to ask me. Is this what you want to know? Are you saying what I meant by this? Is that what you want to know? Notice his answer in verses 20 to 21. Notice that as Jesus typically did, he, he doesn't really answer the question. I mean, he does, but he does it in his own way, like he oftentimes did. They are asking, what does he mean by a little while? Now, he could have just answered it directly. He could have said, hey, are you just asking about this timeline? All right, well, just listen up. Now, in, in precisely 16 hours from now, you won't see me, and then 36 hours from now, you'll see me again. Now, come on, let's go. Uh, he could have just answered the question. I just, I'm answering the timeline question, but he doesn't do that. Why does he give them the answer that he gives them? Because I think Jesus knows their deepest need. He knows what's really bothering them. He sees behind the curtain. He knows that when everything that is about to happen happens, what they're going to need most at that time is not a cold timeline by which they can set their clocks. He knows that what they're going to most need when all this goes down is a reminder that the deep sorrow that they feel is normal. And that the deep sorrow that they feel that is normal is only temporary. That's what he knows they're going to need. You see, Jesus was the Word of God incarnate. So everything he said was God speaking. And when Jesus answered questions, he, he didn't always answer questions the way people wanted him and asked him. He didn't answer them the way they wanted, but he always answered the question the way they needed to have it answered. And that's what Scripture does. This book that we have in our hands, the one that I'm preaching from today, is the Word of God. And it's still what God's Word does. We have questions about many things that Scripture doesn't necessarily answer the way we want it answered. But God's Word tells us what we need to know, not always what we want to know. And you know, because He didn't answer the question directly, to this day, we still don't really know what the timeline was. People are divided on this. Scholars are divided. In fact, at the men's study on Tuesday, uh, some of the guys had different opinions of what Jesus meant. He doesn't give a timeline here. So, uh, scholars are divided. Does, does Jesus mean this? In a little while, you won't see me because I will be crucified and buried in a tomb. But in a little while, and you will see me because I will rise again three days later. Is that what he means? Or does he mean, in a little while you won't see me because I will ascend into heaven, but in a little while 
you will see me because I will send the Holy Spirit to you. Or does he mean, in a little while, you won't see me because I will ascend into heaven, but in a little while, and you will see me again because I will come again at the end of the age to take you home. Well, (laughs) scholars are divided. And I can't tell you up here this morning which it definitively is. Theologically, I guess he could mean any of these things. Some scholars think he, he leaves it ambiguous so that he, could, he does mean all three things. Earlier in the evening, he said something very similar in John 14, 18 to 20. He said, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Yet in a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And I think, as I said in that sermon, that there he is focusing on his ascension, the world's going to see me no more, and the giving of the Holy Spirit. But I will come to you, and you will see me. So it could be that he's saying the same thing here. But I don't think so. Why don't I think so? Well, because so far, so far throughout this entire evening, Jesus has been focusing almost exclusively on what happens after the resurrection. He has been focusing on his ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's talked about leaving to prepare a place for them. He's talked about leaving in order that he might send the Holy Spirit back to them. He's talked about leaving and that it will be to your advantage if I leave because the helper will come. All of the talk so far has revolved around the ascension after the resurrection and the subsequent sending of the Holy Spirit. But what has been conspicuously absent so far, for the most part, this entire night. What's been conspicuously absent has been a discussion of the cross. The resurrection and the ascension will happen, but first comes the cross. In fact, the cross comes now. They are headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. Before they know it, in just a little bit of time, They will be in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas will come. He will arrive with a mob. Jesus will be arrested. He'll be tried. He'll be convicted. He'll be brutally beaten and tortured until he is dead. And Jesus, their master, their teacher, their Lord, their parent, Jesus, the one they thought would come and conquer Rome as the Messiah, will be dead. He will be dead and he will be buried be wrapped in linen and buried in a tomb. And the world around them, both the Jewish leaders and the Romans, will rejoice in his death. How do you think they're going to feel when all of that takes place? See, Jesus is going to ascend to the Father. He's promised that. Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit. He promised that. But before any of that, first comes the cross. And when Jesus is crucified, 
when he is dead, when he is wrapped in linen, and when he is buried, their whole world, as they knew it, for three years, is going to come crashing in on them. What they are going to witness as their Lord is wrapped and buried in a tomb is going to be the worst thing they've ever witnessed in their life. And Jesus acknowledges this. He just says flat out in verse 20, you will be sorrowful. What he says here in verse 20, I think, is so important for us to grasp. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. It's important that we understand what he's saying here. Jesus doesn't say something will happen that will cause you great sorrow, but something else is going to happen that will cause you great joy. What Jesus says here is something will happen that will cause you great sorrow, but that the very thing that caused the sorrow will be the thing that brings you great joy. And the reason we know that, that he's talking about that is because he goes on to give an analogy of what he means. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been brought into the world. Now, those of us uh, who are dads know uh, firsthand You've seen with your own eyes the anguish and the sorrow that Jesus is talking about. I mean, in one sense, when you're there in the room when the baby is being delivered and your wife is going through labor, in one sense, it's the most horrible thing you've ever seen in your life. I mean, you, you, you feel, I'll explain how I feel. I feel like I want to just take the pain away from Michelle. That it's, I've never seen my wife in that kind of pain, um, and I don't know what to do about it. And I think, I'm pretty sure, that for Michelle, probably for most women in this room, the pain of childbirth is the worst pain you've ever experienced. In one sense, it's, it's horrible. And... I've been there maybe every time, I know certainly some of the times, that during labor, Michelle has vocally said, I never want to have another baby again. Something to that effect. But notice, however, as Jesus talks about this, that it is the labor. It's, it's the very thing that caused the greatest pain that this woman has ever felt that is productive. It is the pain, the very thing that causes the greatest pain is also the very thing that brings the greatest joy in the end. 
Because it is that sorrowful and painful process that brings the child into the world. It produces the child. Jesus says this, that the joy of this baby is so great that she no longer remembers the anguish. And I can attest that too. That as soon as Michelle holds the baby that just caused this great pain, she has vocalized, I want to have another. <laughs> Something to that effect. She'll correct me at the end of this. But, but, but I've seen that change, that immediate joy that takes place when that baby is laid in her arms. See, one of the things that's so important for us to realize from, from this text is that I know as Jeff prayed, as we prayed earlier uh, before we began the service uh, with the musicians, that, that every one of you in this room is suffering in some way. Uh, you're all dealing with something. I mean, I, I just know that's true. There's no way that any one of you is sitting here saying, there's nothing bothering me right now in my life. But you see, don't think that God can't take the very thing that is causing you great suffering right now and use that very thing to bring you great joy. Because he did it here. He's done it with labor. And he's done that many times throughout history. This week, um, I, uh, <clears throat> on Tuesday morning, Tuesday is my sermon prep day. Uh, Tuesday is also um, the, the, the morning that we have the men's study. And uh, went, went to the men's study early in the morning. We uh, had a great study. I felt great. And as I walked out to my car, I saw that I had a flat tire. So uh, I gingerly drove my car uh, across the street to the Wawa to fill it up with air. And I saw that my air that should be 35 pounds per square inch was, was down to eight. So I knew something was, was definitely really wrong with the tire. So I filled it up and I drove it to Costco, which is where I got the tires. And I thought, hey, they can repair it, do whatever it takes, and then I'll be on the road and I can get back home and, and get working on my sermon. Well, I got to Costco and, and the tire guy said, well, because you didn't make an appointment, uh, it's gonna be two hours before I can even look at your tire. So I, you know, spent what was, you know, ended up being sort of productive two hours in Costco because I got a little bit of Christmas shopping done, but, but otherwise was very frustrated because all I wanted to do was just get the, you know, but I knew, okay, as soon as they get to the tire, they'll fix it. Well, then I get a phone call and the guy said, I need to show you something, which isn't always a, so I went back and he has my wheel on the floor, my car's still jacked up and he shows me that my wheel, my, uh, yeah, not, not the tire, the wheel has a crack in it. And so he said, there's nothing wrong with the tire, but the wheel's cracking. You can see how it just, the tire doesn't sit up against the wheel now, and so air's just flowing out of this thing. So you actually have to go get a new wheel now. So he said, I'm going to have to put your spare on. Does that, is that good? And I said, I've never used it, but go ahead. And, you know, and so he puts it on. He takes the wheel and throws it in my trunk. And, uh, and then puts the spare on, which then I have to drive everywhere, you know, doing 40 miles an hour, hoping that these bad roads around here don't pop the, the spare. And I, 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 we have 
a, a presbytery meeting later that night uh, that's at Springton Lake Church in Newtown Square. I thought about calling Jeff and hitching a ride, but I thought, well, I'm not going to bother him. I'll just drive there. I'm sure my spare will be fine. I drive to the, uh, the presbytery meeting, and at 10.30 at night, when I'm about to leave, I walk out to my car, and it's, the spare is totally flat. So I call AAA, and they tell me it's going to take two hours to get someone a tow truck there. So I asked Jeff, can you please drive me home? And he said, let's go. So he drives me home. Donna just asked me this morning, did you ever get your car back? I said, it still has a flat tire in the parking lot of Springton Lake Church. So it's still there. All week I've been without a car and they've had to order a new wheel and all of this. And I've just thought, Lord, why? <laughs> why all of this? And why all of that on the day that I was supposed to prepare my sermon? So I don't have an answer yet, but I can take uh, some solace in passages like James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Romans 8.28 a verse that's often taken out of context, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But if that's true in general, then what is it that Jesus is focused on? What specific thing this evening is going to produce such great sorrow for them, but yet will be the source of their greatest joy? It is the cross. Because when the Lord is risen, then the cross, the very thing that gave them the most intense sorrow, will be the very thing that gives them their greatest source of joy. Look behind me. What do we hang up in Christian churches? What has become the symbol of Christianity? What has become the symbol of hope for billions of people around the world. That cross in Jesus' day terrified people. The cross in Jesus' day was the worst method of torture that the Romans conceived. But think about it. It's the cross. It was the cross then when the New Testament was written by these men, and it is the cross now, knowing what it accomplished on our behalf, knowing that it was the cross that brought us close to God, how it redeemed our lives from the pit, that gives Christians the greatest joy. We look up at the cross, and rather than see it simply as an implement of torture, we see it as the means by which God accomplished the greatest act of love and grace this world has ever known. And Jesus says in verse 22, You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Notice here, at the end, as I close, the crucial and important change that Jesus makes. Earlier, he said, 
in a little while you won't see me, and then in a little while you will see me. But now, notice the change. Now he says, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. See, what is central to Christianity? Not just the cross, but the physical and bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. People have argued for thousands of years that a physical, bodily resurrection is not essential to Christianity. That that Jesus' bones could still be lying in a tomb somewhere and Christianity still matter. Because after all, all that really mattered is that when the apostles proclaimed He is risen, all they meant was that He was risen in their thoughts and their memories of what He taught them. If you notice, if you go to enough funerals, you'll notice that people say those kind of things today to try to make themselves feel better. Their loved one has died, and they have no further access to that person. And what do they say is, he's not really gone. He's still here in our thoughts and in our minds and in the things that he said to us. And we all know that's wrong. We're saying that to try to give us some reason to go on. Isn't it amazing then that Jesus says, not you will see me again, which could simply mean you'll see my dead body in the tomb when you come and visit me every year, just like they do in China and in other communist countries when they go and they venerate these long since dead communist leaders that they have embalmed that are laying there that they treat as gods. Jesus could have been saying, you will see me again, meaning you'll see me in your thoughts and memories. But he doesn't say that. He says, I will see you again. Jesus is certain that his heavenly Father is going to be faithful to his word and that he will not let his Holy One see corruption and decay. Jesus is certain that after three days in the tomb, his body will awaken. He's certain that his once dead body will be alive, never to die again. And when he sees them with glorified eyes, when he sees them again as the resurrected Lord, then their hearts will rejoice. Not only because their master has returned, but so in so returning, he has conquered sin and death once for all. And brothers and sisters... If you have a loved one who has died in Christ, the next time you think of the resurrection on the last day, maybe instead of thinking that you will see them again, be encouraged that they will see you again. That their decayed body will be pieced majestically and sovereignly back together again by the power of one who created them in the first place. And that their long since ruined organs will be brought back to life. And that those eyes will look on you again. That their face will light up again. And that they will see you and you will see them smile at you again. 
See, that evening, these 11 men were like little children. They were confused. They were saddened. They were troubled. They were full of questions. And Jesus had promised them that he was leaving them, that he was going to the Father. And he promised them that when he went to the Father, he's going to prepare a place for them. That when he goes to the Father, he's going to be sending them another helper. That when he goes to the Father, it's going to be to their advantage. He made all of these amazing promises. And then the crucifixion happened. Scripture tells us that when the crucifixion happened, these 11 men who were there with him that night, they they ran scared. They huddled together in sorrow and anguish. See, despite whatever Jesus had told them about, I'm going to the Father, and when I go to the Father, it will be to your advantage. Despite all those promises, the cross was so horrible that they must have been thinking that all was lost. The cross was so horrible, they must have been thinking that all of these plans had been derailed. The cross was so horrible, they must have been thinking that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. Jesus knew that. He knew that they would be suffering. And so, isn't it interesting that on the morning of the resurrection, which we will see, Before the light of dawn, Jesus spoke first to a weeping disciple. She wasn't there that night, but her name was Mary Magdalene, the first person he spoke to after he rose. What were the very first instructions that he gave to her? The very first instruction that he gave was, listen, Mary, Don't stand here clinging to me. I know you're happy to see me, but don't cling to me. I want you to go. I want you to run. Because there's something that the 11 need to hear. I want you to tell them that I am ascending to my Father. I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God, and to your God. That's what he wanted her to tell them. Why? Because he wanted them to know that the cross did not destroy everything he had promised. He wanted them to know that instead the cross had enabled everything he had promised, and all that he had promised was about to be fulfilled. 